Wow, praise the Lord. Um, I'm excited this morning. Uh, this is a, it's always a, a, such an honor and a privilege uh, to be able to share with you all, and I, I don't take it lightly, and I'm very grateful. Um, if you're watching uh, online, uh, I have some friends and family watching online and many others, thank you for joining us this morning, and uh, for those that will listen afterwards to the recording on YouTube and so on. Um, I'm very grateful because uh, we get to continue, if you were here six weeks ago, uh, if you happen to be here that week, um, I got to speak and I spoke on something called Law and Love, uh, drawing a contrast between the law of Moses or what in the, the Christian tradition is often referred to as the moral law, and contrasting that with the love of Christ. And honestly, um, throughout my Christian life, I've uh, been in church since I was six years old, I don't remember ever hearing a message showing, you know, the law of Moses versus the love of Christ. But in this new walk of faith, once I discovered the gospel of grace, which I know sounds strange to some, how can you be in church all your life and just recently discover the gospel of grace? What is that? I, I, this church knows what that is for the most part, right? So <laughs> I don't need to explain that. We're well taught here. Um, but uh, to, to others, you know, that may sound strange. And um, so I wanted to explore a little bit of that with you this morning and, and, and maybe share some things from Scripture that maybe you haven't heard before um, because I hadn't heard it before. So maybe it'll bless you the way it's blessed me. Um, if, if you were here before uh, when I spoke, uh, we... We explained that it's the love of Christ, not the behavioral standard of the law, that is the basis for our identity and our belonging in God. It's also the basis of our new life in Christ. The love of Christ, not the behavioral standard of the law, is the basis of our identity and our belonging in God as well as the basis of our new life in Christ. Um, when, when we covered this before, we focused on the identity and belonging portion of that. We focused on uh, what theologians refer to as justification by faith, but talking about how the law doesn't dictate our standing, our right standing before the Father. In fact, the, the law offers no feasible path to righteousness for anyone. In fact, we, we, we explained how there's no such thing as righteousness except God's righteousness. So if you weren't here, um, definitely go back and, and check out part one. Um, we, we covered how the law reveals that our best efforts to prove our own righteousness before God result in what? A pile of filthy rags, Scripture says. All of our best days combined, striving under the law, result in something that isn't even close to righteousness, right? A lot of us think, oh, but I'm doing pretty good versus the law. But the law says otherwise, right? And it's by faith in His blood that we have life, new life in Christ. And we explained how faith in His blood and all the other pictures of the suffering and death that He accomplished for us at the cross are 
pictures of his love for us. And it's this confidence in his love for us that is everything. Without confidence in his love for us, we're still in bondage to fear. And this is what I want to show more about today, because today we're going to get into the new life in Christ part of this, right? So, all right, if, if you're still not sure about our identity and our standing before God and how that is completely determined by us trusting in the blood of Christ to accomplish that for us, then, then definitely go back and review um, what we covered in the first part of this. Today we're going to talk about kind of what now, <laughs> right? Okay, I'm, I stand righteous before God. I'm pure and holy before God. I have right standing with Him. But this new life in Christ is about something like putting off the old and putting on the new, right? You've heard that in Scripture? Yeah. It's relying solely on Christ's love. It's being transformed by the renewing of our mind, that we are loved by God. And it's living well-loved by the Father through faith in His Son. It's living well-loved by the Father through faith in His Son. That's what sets us free. That's what gives us life. That's what brings hope to our spirits. That's what causes us to come alive. So what is it about this contrast between law and love. How do these two things, which oppose each other, how do they affect how we live? You know, some say, isn't the law necessary for us to live right? Don't we need it for that purpose? How do we know what's right and what's wrong if we don't rely on the moral law? Don't we need to teach about sin so that people can learn to stop doing it? You've heard that before, right? So I ask you this morning, does the law actually help us live right? Does the law help us to see how we're doing? Is it useful for that? When we use the law to measure people, to measure ourselves, to measure others, does it help or do we invite more sin? How about self-righteousness? Does it help with that? So, um, in, in Romans, Paul, in chapter 5, well, in the book of Romans, he, he writes about this extensively, and Matt did an amazing job uh, a couple months ago taking us through uh, several chapters of, in Romans, um, 5, 6, 7, 8, wasn't that the name of the message? <laughs> Love that, it's so good. Uh, in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, Paul wrote, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Now we, we've heard the second part of that all the time, right? In, in, in grace churches, you know, those that teach the gospel of grace, we understand Right, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Absolutely, right? That's, that's something we've come to be very familiar with. But the law came in to increase the trespass. 
the New Living Translation, which I won't have for you on the screen this morning, I'll just read it to you, that same verse, it says it this way, God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. The law was given by God so that people could see how sinful they were. Haven't heard too many messages on that. I didn't understand that growing up. I didn't know about that. I was trusting in the law, and I was working hard to be good according to the rules in the law. Were you? Further down in Romans chapter 7, Paul continues explaining, he says, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law. You have died to the law. Boy, we could spend some time there. Through the body of Christ, remember that picture of Christ's love for us? There it is again. The love of Christ shown to us through the suffering and death of our Savior on the cross enabled us to die, caused us to die to the law. Are you dead to the law this morning? Die to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. He's using the analogy of marriage under the law of Moses. He's talking about the woman under the law of Moses could never divorce, right? And until the husband died, the woman was bound to her husband. That's the analogy he's using here, right? But when death occurs, when a party to the marriage dies, something changes. You're no longer obligated under the covenant of of that marriage. You're not married to that person anymore. That person's dead. You see, that's what he's referring to here, and he explains that in much greater detail, as many of you know. In order that we may bear fruit for God, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law. I know this room knows this pretty well. This was absolutely life-changing to me. I had never heard this before. At least I don't remember hearing it. Our sinful passions aroused by the law. Did you know that the law stirs up the desire to sin inside of you? For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. So, so far, here in Romans chapter 7, we see that a person who is in Christ has died to the law, and we see that the effect of the law on us is that it stirs up the desire to sin. Continuing on in verse 6, it says, But now we are released from the law, having died 
Uh-oh. We're released from the law? How can that be? Now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. The law actually held us captive? We're released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Do you see how he uses the phrase written code, the written rules as the descriptor for the law, the moral law? There's a new way. He's contrasting the new way from the old way, isn't he? The old way held us captive. It didn't bring us life. We are released from the obligations of the law now that we have died. In, in his amazing book, Pure Grace, Clark calls this, refers to this as the jurisdiction of the law. We're not under the jurisdiction of the law any longer. I love that. The law gives power to sin. It, told, it, it gives power to sin to hold us captive. The law does not help people stop sinning. It does the opposite. It actually stirs up the desire to sin more. So what do we do now? Don't, don't people say, this can't be right. We need to preach sin. We need to preach sin more in church so that people will know to stop sinning. They don't realize that preaching more law, which is how we define sin, isn't it? The law of sin and death is what we've been set free from by the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Preaching that more and more causes more and more of the sinning. Oh, come on, Brett. I, are you telling me that if we preach, you know, thou shalt not murder, that people are going to go kill more people? Do you remember what Jesus said uh, towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount? It was just amazing. He just, over and over again, he's like, you've heard it said, but I say unto you. You've heard it said, but I say unto you. And he kept referring to different elements in the law. He said, you've heard it said, thou shalt not murder, but I say unto you that he who is angry with his brother without a cause, without a cause is guilty of the same judgment. He's saying, you think that just because you didn't do the physical deed, you didn't wield a weapon, you didn't actually end that person physically, that you are innocent to that commandment. What you don't realize is that you're actually condemned by that same commandment because you're just looking outwardly. You don't realize that the spirit of the law brings death. You don't realize that you write people off all the time that you hate people in your heart. I don't hate people. We're commanded to love. I love people. I don't know, man. During the last election cycle, I saw people write off millions of Americans because of who they voted for. I mean, literally hated them. A lot of people in the church hated them. It doesn't matter which side you're on, by the way. I'm not alluding to one side or the other. The same was true on both sides, wasn't it? And that's just one example. So many other things cause us to hate one another 
when we're thinking in terms of rules and obligations that stand against us in order to be a good person, in order to have right standing before God, in order to be obedient, right? Jesus was very clear in John chapter 6 that obedience to His commandment is not what we thought it was. It's belief in Him. It's not obedience to the moral law or the written code. Paul is saying here to the Romans, although you would assume in your natural mind that the Ten Commandments or the so-called moral law as it's taught today would help people stop sinning, but the real-world effect of that law and of that preaching is that it causes the multiplication of sin. Further down in Romans chapter 7, and I don't have this on the screen for you, but I'll just, I'll just uh, summarize it. I encourage you to read on from verses 7 to verse 10. He gives the specific example of you shall not covet. So just like I just walked through the example that Jesus taught about you shall not murder, right? And he actually explains this using that example, and he says the commandment itself, thou shalt not covet, actually created an opportunity for sin because the law is weak through our flesh. And because of that opportunity that the commandment created, sin was able to create all kinds of covetousness within me, Paul said, because of the commandment. As a direct result of the commandment, thou shalt not covet, it produced all kinds of covetousness inside of him. But then he explains, apart from the law, sin lies dead. How does sin lie dead if you take away the rules? Well, there's no rules to break at this point. That sounds scary, doesn't it? I think, yeah, Clark uh, said this in his book too. He said, if your conscience doesn't rise up and accuse you of licentiousness, you are not preaching the gospel of grace, the true gospel. In other words, if, if your own conscience doesn't go, whoa, wait a second, that's some scary stuff. If you take away the basis upon which I have judged right and wrong all this time, good and evil all this time, kind of like that tree back in the garden. How will I know what's right and wrong? How will I know what to do and what to avoid? That can't be right. We've got to pursue what's good, and the law says what's good, doesn't it? That's how you know you're over the target. Because the, the news is good news, but the flesh freaks out, doesn't it? Does, don't you get in, when you get into this, doesn't your heart go, boy, I hope there's something good here that's more powerful than the law because, hey, guess what? The law kills you. The law is not a safe place. Mm. I could spend some time talking about an abusive marriage or a relationship or something like that, right? Like, that's what the law is. Don't you realize that? But how tough can it be for us to realize the law doesn't love us, the law isn't safe, the law mistreats us, the law condemns us, it promises us life, but it has no ability to deliver on that because we have no ability to satisfy it, to live up to its demands, right? So the net effect, the actual effect of the law in the real world 
in you, in your life, is that it multiplies sin. It causes more sin, which leads to death. It can't deliver on the promises of life that it promises. So, if the law is powerless to help us with sin, and it actually causes more sin, what does help to overcome sin? We need that, don't we? It's believing in Christ's love for us that we get to be counted as dead to the law. It's latching on to His great love for us that causes us to become dead to sin. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. Well, Brett, what about self-control? We've, we've got to have some way to control. We, uh, aren't we just going to run amok? I mean, we can believe we're loved and all, but doesn't our flesh want to go do all kinds of stuff? Let's see, we, we covered some of what Paul uh, wrote to the, those who would believe in Rome. Let's, let's see what he wrote to those in the church of Corinth. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 14, he writes, For the love of Christ controls us. Have you ever seen that before? I had never seen that before. I'd read this so many times, I had never seen that before. The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. Aside from Christ, I ask you, who has ever been righteous in history? Apart from the faith, the righteousness accomplished by faith, apart from that, who has ever accomplished righteousness, ever? But even the righteous one himself had to die. The Lord of glory, the Ancient of Days, himself, even he died. The game is over, folks. Friends, there's no more let's try to measure up to the law and see if we can't avoid, see if we can avoid deserving death. The righteous one died. Do you see it? Paul is saying we have concluded that even, even he died so it's done. There's no more trying to measure up to the law. It has no more power over you. That game, it's game over. <laughs> Amen? Continuing in uh, verse 15, it says, And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died. I hope you're getting this. 
and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer. We've stopped looking at each other and ourselves according to the weakness of our flesh and trying to manage the sin that our flesh wrestles with. We've stopped looking at each other and putting each other up against the measuring stick and saying, you're doing good, you're not doing so good, you need to do better, you need to be better, I need to do better, I need to be better. That game is over. That world is gone. All have died and He died for all. The new has begun. This is the kingdom of heaven that Jesus came to reveal. And by the way, Jesus preached all this too. I only wish I had the time to share some of that. We're talking mostly about Paul's writings here. In the old world, we regarded people based on outward appearances, but in the new world, we regard and value and worth, determine people's worth based on the love of Christ, the blood of Christ. All right, Brett, you might ask, what does this have to do with helping with the problem of sin? It's that the rules that define sin and demand death, that's what the law does, right? They don't govern anymore. This is the new world, the world of faith, the world of the Spirit, the new life of the Spirit, the new, the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made us free from the law of sin and death. We belong to another. Remember when it said that? We belong to Jesus, not the law. Sin now lies dead. You can have confidence in that. If you live apart from the law, Sin lies dead. We've been taught the opposite so long. We can't, this seems confusing. It's disorienting, isn't it? The measure of what is good, though, is not in the written rules. The measure of what is good is found in knowing Him who is good. He's the one who's good. Back in the garden, they wanted to know God's wisdom. They looked upon the tree. It looked good for wisdom. They wanted to know more about the differences between good and evil. They wanted to have knowledge, fixed knowledge, so I can, I can tell without distinction, black and white, I want to know what's good and what's evil. And that's what they pursued in the eating of that fruit. And that's what the law fulfilled. The law is the culmination of that request. Here you go. You want to know the law? You want to know more about good and evil through written rules? It's going to not be good for you. But don't worry. I got a plan. On the other side of this, from the foundations of the world, (laughs) the lamb was slain. So self-control then is through the love of Christ, not the moral law. 
Do you see that? Can you latch on to that? It's a tough one if you've been taught your whole life, you've been anchored in the written rules of good and evil, right? Under the law, what did they ask in regards to the obligation to love? Remember the culmination of the law and the prophets Jesus explained? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the culmination, the summary, the sum total of that law that held us captive is this set of obligations we could never fulfill. Love your neighbor. Who's my neighbor, they asked, right? Didn't the Pharisees ask that question of Jesus? How he answered that, by the way, is beautiful. We won't cover that today. But in the love of Christ, we don't ask, who is my neighbor? We ask, we ask, for whom did Jesus die? He died for all. You mean, Brett, I, I don't have the right to, to judge someone in their sin and their behavior? Maybe some other time we'll cover the verses that explain where if you do that, you literally bring the power of the law back into your own life and it condemns you in that same moment. In fact, that's literally what Jesus was talking about when he said, the, 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 gave them the cartoonish picture of people trying to pull the beam out of somebody else's eye, I mean the, the, the speck out of somebody else's eye, not realizing that that very act proves that they have a beam in their own eye. That's literally what he's talking about there. You bring the judgmental power of the law and the death that that brings and the condemnation that brings back into your own life when you say, you need to do better, you need to be better, because the law says. And if you don't, the law says, right? That's the spirit of the law. This is not semantics. It's not some kind of mental trick. Because at the end of the day, people, people tend to say, but, but at the end of the day, you've got to live right. You can't just go off and do whatever you want. But do we ask that question because we don't really believe in the power of the love of Christ? Yeah. Trusting in the love of Christ for you, this is faith in Christ. Um, running short on time here, so... <clears throat> he writes to Timothy something similar. There's some other examples of this. I'm going to spin through these really quick here. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, he says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear. Did you experience a little anxiety when you thought about, I don't have the law anymore to rely on? That's the safe walls? No spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Some of the translations say soundness of mind instead of self-control, right? But the idea is the Spirit of Christ enables you to possess yourself. He wrote to the church in Galatia something similar. Galatians chapter 5 verse 16 says, But I say, walk by the Spirit. And you will not fulfill or gratify the desires of the flesh. What does that mean, walk by the Spirit? Now you know. 
the spirit of life in Christ Jesus dwells within you if you believe it, if you trust in it, if you cling to it. By the way, the desires of the flesh can include wanting to be justified by our good works. Isn't that the root of self-righteousness? Does that mean that self-righteousness is a product of the flesh? Not just all the do-not-dos? Remember, the commandments in the law have commandments for, you know, love the Lord your God, uh, honor your father and mother. It's not just do-not-dos, right? It's a lot of the do-dos. When we pursue those, the good things in the law, we give ourselves permission to judge ourselves by that standard and to judge one another by that standard, and we deceive ourselves and become blind to the reality that's in us because of the law and the weakness of our flesh, and we become blind to our need for Christ. And isn't that what happened to the Pharisees? the teachers of the law, the ones who displayed all of the good things in the law, the best of their ability, but what did Jesus refer to them as? Whitewashed sepulchers full of dead men's bones, on the outside looking good, but on the inside filled with death. That's us when we pursue the law and judge ourselves and others by that same standard. But we have died to that. We belong to another we have come alive, we're a new creation, and we have something so much better, don't we? Is the love of God really enough? Is it powerful enough? It's not rules anymore. How will I know? Plus, you can't just talk about love. Even the love of God, as great as it is, don't we have to mature? and grow strong as believers? Don't we have to move beyond that? Isn't the love of God sort of like the believer's ABCs? Isn't it how we get sort of people into the kingdom, get them saved? But then when they get in, all right, now let's get to work. Let's roll up our sleeves, right? So again, Paul writes to yet another group of believers in Ephesus. Ephesians chapter 3 says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family on earth, in heaven and on earth, is named, that according to the riches of His glory He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. Strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. Does the law fill you with power to overcome sin, or does it do the opposite? But the Spirit of Christ that comes and dwells within you strengthens you with power. Power for what? That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength strength to comprehend 
with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. If you... (laughs) I have a little bit of an analytical mind sometimes. Some of you might have that too. I overanalyze things. I'm like, Paul, come on, man. Four dimensions, really? Length and breadth and what is that all? Four dimensions? Aren't there only three? There's more to the love of Christ than you can possibly see with your eyes, feel with your senses, understand with your mind. It's deeper than you can know. His love for you. You have to experience it for yourself. It's not an academic exercise. It's not just something you learn about in school or at seminary. (laughs) The love of Christ is beyond knowledge. It's beyond knowing. And yet, through the Spirit, through the Spirit of Christ, that which is beyond knowing, we can know more and more every day to where we become filled with the fullness of God. It's not the ABCs, my friends. We're going to be learning about the love of Christ through all eternity. The love of Christ for us. We're going to be unpacking what happened at the cross for all eternity. Do we really feel like we know everything that happened there? All that He experienced? Have you read read the prophecies in Isaiah that describe how he was beyond recognition as a human being, that he took upon himself all the diseases and sickness. We can't even comprehend what happened to him on the cross. But what happened to him on the cross is our confidence. It's our faith. It's our assurance before God. Further down in Galatians chapter 5, and I apologize, I know I'm running a little bit over. Bear with me just a few more minutes. Is this good? (laughs) Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, he says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Yeah, Brett, but these are things that you're supposed to produce in your own life. No. It's the fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit that's in you produces it. In the garden, God said to them, you may eat of every tree, except that one, every tree, eat of it. The fruit of the Spirit is for you to eat. 
to partake of the nature of God, the goodness of God, the love of God. All of us experience hard times. We go through all kinds of death experiences in our life. We experience pain, suffering, anxiety, and fear. We doubt everything. But we have the Spirit of Christ inside of us to cling to, to eat of, to partake of. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 6? I am the bread of life. Eat of my flesh, drink of my blood. It is life to you. If you don't eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you, can, you have no part in me. Apart from me, you can do nothing, he said. It's the source of our life, and it is so much greater than the law. The law is death to us. The spirit of life in Christ Jesus is life to us. <clears throat> All right. Um, oh, there's so much more. I'm going to wrap up with this. I'm not going to read it to you. I'm just going to tell you quickly. I'm going to skip a little bit. <clears throat> A wonderful example of this, the Apostle Peter, he's out on the water, um, you can read this in Luke chapter 5, he's out on the water, Jesus preaches, it's at the very beginning of Jesus' uh, ministry, Jesus asks Peter, hey, can I get in your boat, can you push it out a little bit, I want to preach to the crowds, right? When he's done preaching, Jesus said to them, go out and fish, go out and cast your nets, Do you remember what happened? They cast their nets after having fished all night, by the way. They had fished all night and caught how much? How much righteousness and goodness do you produce in you through all of your efforts? None. You worked all night and caught nothing. Nothing. Jesus sends them out and they're like, at your word, I mean, we, we did the, we've been through this. At your word, we'll do it. They caught this huge net of fish, and what did Peter do? He said, when Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Peter didn't know the love of Christ. All he knew was the law. Since he was a kid, he was taught in synagogue. Thou shalt love the Lord your God. Thou shalt love your neighbor. Thou shalt do this. Thou shalt not do that. And when he saw something he couldn't explain, he saw Christ doing something that proved this man must be righteous. Must be righteous. He immediately saw himself as unrighteous and said, you've got to get away from me, Lord. Don't we do that in our prayer life, if we're honest, when we're not thinking about the love of Christ? Don't we go, oh, God, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. Whatever, however we think of the word repentance in our old life, right? However we've been taught of that. Don't we, don't we think of God as far off? He should be far off if he's not because I've sinned. Certainly haven't done all the stuff I should have done. Did you know 
that miracle happened two times in the Bible? At the end of Christ's ministry, he dies, suffers and dies, and he's resurrected. And Peter, who was so boastful, I'm devoted to you, I'll die for you, I'll do anything for you, I cut the guy's ear off, did you see that? And what does he do? Immediately, he denies Christ three times, swears with cuss words, he doesn't even know the man. That's the fruit of the law in our lives. But just days later, well, that morning, Christ was crucified, resurrected. Jesus is resurrected and he starts revealing himself to the disciples, right? In closed door, behind closed doors, he starts showing up. And they're, they're like, Peter's like, I'm going fishing, guys. Who wants to go? whole bunch of them go with him again. He's out on the same lake. The same lake. I don't think that's a mistake. I think Jesus is drawing these comparisons so that we'll notice, we'll take notice. And Jesus says, hey, cast your net. You know, oh, okay, all right. We've been working at this all night. We caught nothing. But yes, sir. They caught the fish again. Miraculous catch. John is in the boat. And John says, hey, Peter, I think, I think that's the Lord. It's the Lord, Peter. What does he do? What does he do this time? When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord... He put on his outer garment because he had taken off his, his cloak for work. And he cast himself. He threw himself in the water and swam to the shore. It's my Lord. Uh, stand with me. Uh, let's pray. Yep, did it again. <laughs> Thanks for bearing with me. Um, this is life. It is such life to us. And if you've been under, you know, Jesus was out there and saying, hey, all you who are weary and heavy laden, come to me, I will give you rest, right? I'm meek, I'm lowly of heart. Learn of me. That's what's happening here. That's what the whole gospel is about. Do you receive it? There's life in the love of Christ. Eat of it every day. If you're caught up in your mind, contemplate what he did for you. Contemplate his love for you. Lord, I can't, I can't picture it. I'm going through this. I can't latch on to it. But I know you're inside of me. Help me see today. He's the bread of life. Partake of it every day. Mature in Him through the constant reminder and revealing of His love for you. That is life. The rules are not. The rules are death to you. Don't go back to them. And don't believe those who insist because of their doubt and unbelief that you must, you must not 
You belong to another. Amen? It's good, isn't it? Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us such hope in you. Thank you that the fruit we get to eat of, it's delicious. You're so good. You're always good. There's not a single bitter fruit on the trees of life that you have given us to eat of. You have rescued us from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the spirit of death, and you have given us new life in yourself. Thank you. Thank you for that new life. Thank you that we get to have joy as we go out from here because we know that the hope we have in you is relentless, it's steadfast, it's unshakable, and that we're finally free from that which held us captive, those rules that always condemned us and found fault with us. Instead, we get to go around and say, who else did you die for, Lord? (laughs) Thank you, Lord, for living inside of us and giving us new life in Christ. In the mighty and glorious name of Jesus, we give you thanks. Amen.